I don't know how you feel about this, but I always get intimidated when I am in a position or put in a position where I have to define God. Does that, how many of you can resonate with that? It seems a bit intimidating to define God, right? God, the limitless, all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe. How does somebody like me or you or anyone for that matter define who God is? How can someone pretend to know what God is like or in the case of our series, what God is not like, right? Have you thought about that? It's a daunting thing to try to define who God is. Now, if your view of God is small and like a cardboard cutout that you can put in your pocket, that doesn't intimidate you. But if you believe that God is who he says he is, the creator of the universe, limitless, all-powerful, all those things, then trying to define him is like, who am I to try to draw a picture for you who God is? It reminds me of a proverb. I'll never forget hearing this proverb. And it kind of... This is nerdy stuff, so you have to put on your thinking cap, but it kind of captures where we are in academics as a society, like if you were to go into higher education, college, a master's degree, a doctorate, we've moved out of what we call a modern age where things are knowable, and we've moved into what scholars would call post-modernity which is truth is relative. Chances are you might not know that in the academic world that that's a thing, but you certainly heard that in school. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. What's true for me is true for me. What's true for you might be different. That's called post-modernity. And the reason that that ideology exists is because people started realizing who are we, these finite people, to say that we have a monopoly or an understanding of what is true. Right. And so there's this idea of postmodernity and with postmodernity came this proverb that I want to show you. So there's a picture I'm going to put up on the screen of an elephant. And then this proverb, you've I've probably used this with you before. You may remember this, but there are six blind in this case, men, but it could be men or women that encounter an elephant, but they're blind. Elephant obviously cannot talk because elephants don't do that, although they may make noise. They don't talk. One of the men grabs the trunk and thinks it is a snake. Another grabs the ear and thinks maybe a carpet. It's furry, floppy. Maybe it's like a weird textured carpet. Another lays hold of its tusk and says it's a spear. Another grabs its leg and says it is a tree, clearly. Another puts his hand on the side of the elephant and says no, it is a wall. And another is in the back grabbing the tail and thinks, no, it is a rope. Now, as you can see, this is a very simplified understanding of what postmodernity is. And that is to say that you might only have part of the truth and somebody else might have another dimension of the truth. And so, therefore, truth in some way is relative. But here's where the analogy falls apart. What if the elephant can talk? In which case it would say to the man holding the trunk, that's not a snake, that's my trunk. And it makes noise, it can drink water, so on and so forth. Then the spear man can be said, no, that's my tusk, it comes out of my face, it's sharp, I use it to protect myself. As you can see, if there's this very 
enormous entity is able to speak, then, then it is more accurately defined. And that, my friends, is how we can know, or at least in part know, who God is and who God isn't because God spoke to us. And the way that he spoke to us was through the person of Jesus Christ coming and living amongst us, but then also he gave us a gift that is his word. And he reveals his character in the word of God. And so we have this kind of picture of what God is like and what God is not like. But it's a little different than the elephant because, and I'll show you what I mean, because I don't think that God gives us the, like the elephant that talks can tell the individuals that are there and they can start to understand. I think of defining God more like this picture that Neil will put up. To me, have you ever, you've probably done one of these drawings before where you have a bunch of random dots and they're numbered and you draw the lines, right? And here's an example of a completed one that they use with kindergartners, right? Uh, I think kindergartners, maybe maybe, uh, maybe older, I don't know. How many of you have done these <laughs> in kindergarten? Um, but this one is clearly a lightning bolt. But I want you to imagine that for us, encountering and knowing and understanding God, we get the dots without the numbers, and then God gives us the numbers slowly. And then maybe, perhaps, God chooses not to give us some of the numbers, and maybe not even some of the dots. That is to say that God gives us a picture of who he is, but we do not have the full picture, and we certainly don't have all the colors of the picture. And so following God is, is tricky because it's not like we're trying to create a box. Like when we define God, this is who God is, and this is who God is not, and, and to say we have God figured out. We don't. We don't have God figured out. But God does give us corners of the picture or, or certain lines that where the dots are connected, and then we're able to say, like, yes, this is what God is like, and this is not what God is like. And he does that throughout Scripture, right? God is love. He says that about himself. He is not, as Neil talked about last week, I want to say a liar. Bingo. He is not a liar, right? God does not lie. And that is not to say that God is limited, like, oh, he he isn't allowed to lie. It's just against his character to do so, and therefore he won't lie. He cannot lie in some ways because he limits himself. No one limits him. We don't limit him. Parameters don't limit him, but his character is secure, right? Another thing that God says about himself is he's unchanging, which means he doesn't wake up one day angry and go to bed the next night and then wake up the next day happy. He's consistent in who he is. He's consistent in his character. And so as we jump into this next, God is not, the way we know that that's a, de a clearly defined corner or line in the picture is because God is actually speaking to us and giving us where we are to connect the dots to make this picture, right? It's, it's not, we're not, we're not being arrogant and saying, this is who God is and this is not who God is. We're just saying, this is who God says he is and this is who God says he is not. And in this case, God reveals in this second small lesson we're going to do that God is not a respecter of people. Now I know what you're thinking. That doesn't sound like God. God respects people, right? Certainly he respects and loves people. But what this phrase, respecter of people, means is 
There is no way for us to put ourselves in a position where God respects us on an elevated level above other people because of class or status or, or any of those things. Really, kind of the best way to translate it is that God is not someone who plays favorites. He doesn't have favorites. He just has people, and he in, interacts in, with people on the same level, all people on the same level, equally. There is no hierarchy with God. It's just he sees us as people, and he treats us as people, and there's no way to earn or lessen our, quote, respect. Now, I will say this because I know what you're thinking. Well, that's a bit confusing because he talks about throughout Scripture that he will reward certain people more than he will reward others. That's not favoritism. That's just us taking advantage of the opportunity that he puts before us. But he gives all of us equal opportunity, equal chance to follow him, to trust him, right? Acts 10, 34 through 35 says it this way. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, or another way of translating that is he does not have any favoritism, but in every nation, that's every person in the world, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. In other words, everybody's on an equal playing field in God's eyes. He does not play favorites. All throughout history, humanity has treated people differently based on their, you fill in the blank, class, race, fitness, fame, appearance, success, lack of success, morality, achievements, and the list can go on and on. And we hate to admit that, but that's just true. We do it every single day probably in some way, shape, or form, with whether we know it or we don't. We make judgments about people based on really, like, sometimes nothing. It's just we like certain people and we don't like other people. We can't say one's better than the other because if you got to know them, you'd realize, oh, everybody has their dirt, everybody has their imperfections, their insecurities, so on and so forth. But we still treat certain people better than we treat others. That's favoritism. God does not treat us with favoritism. He just treats us equally. And so no person receives special treatment from God. And I want to give you three quick, before we jump in our small groups, specific ways that God does not play favorites. All right? The first is that every single person on earth is expected to obey God. Now, I remember hearing this story. My buddy, uh, he worked at Regal uh, Cinemas in Montrose, like up in Fairlawn area. That happens to be where LeBron first purchased his house after he was drafted in the NBA to the Cleveland Cavaliers. And the story is that LeBron would often walk into the movie theater. This was when he was younger, maybe a little bit more immature, just, you know, he's like 18 years old making a bazillion dollars. You know, that's kind of, that would be a, Hard for any of us probably to handle. But he used to walk into the movie theater and not buy a ticket and just go straight straight into the movie theater, sit down and watch the movie. And no one kicked him out. Why? Because he's LeBron James. You, you don't kick out LeBron James from your movie theater. You don't want to be the one that's like, I drove LeBron James out of the building. So really, the management and the people there, they didn't care. And managers are allowed to give passes. And so they would, instead of him saying, well, he's stealing – they would just it just turned into a thing. Managers just can let whoever they want into the building at any time to see whatever movie they want to, and so they would just give LeBron passes as he went into the movie theater. But here's the thing: with God, it doesn't work that way. 
We can't earn a special status and then start thinking, okay, now I've earned the right to not obey him. And here's what we often do. We might not, we might not do that because of our status, but we might do that because of our situation. You know, a perfect example might be someone is engaged to get married and then COVID happens and their wedding gets canceled. And they're like, well, God, we know that God wants us to try our best in this moment, right? Maybe they've had mistakes in the past. It's fine. But he knows that moving forward, he wants us to do our very best to stay faithful to him and to refrain from sharing that special something that married people share. But they go, but our wedding got canceled, so God understands. No, that's not true. He expects everyone to obey. That, that's just one example. Maybe we're in a situation at school where it's like we've worked really hard, we've studied really hard, but for whatever reason, we're having a mind blank and we have the opportunity to cheat off of somebody's paper or take somebody's homework and copy it or whatever the case may be. And we think God understands. He knows how stressed out I am. He's not going to be disappointed if I do this. And so we decide to cheat and copy the homework or steal the answers or whatever the case may be. We can't make special exceptions for ourselves. Every person is expected to obey God. Now, those are just two examples. I don't mean to be legalistic. That's not what I'm trying to do. But we often do this as people. We make concessions for ourselves based on circumstances or situations we find ourselves in. And we say, you know what? Maybe God won't care if I fudge a little bit on this. That's not the case. We can't earn a position with God where he lets us off the hook with obedience. Now, does he understand when we disobey? Yes. Does he have mercy for us when we disobey? Yes. But does it make any uh, the offense any less? No. He's offended by it. And he still loves us, which is great. Which leads to the next thing, right? All of us are expected to obey, but because we don't always do that, all people are equally guilty before God. Romans 3.23 says, Everyone is sinned and falls short of the glory of God. There's no person on earth that is good enough to earn like a status with God of perfection. The only one that ever did that is Jesus, and he himself was God in the flesh. That's the only one. And so what that means is that all of us are not worthy of God, right? If you feel, I'm not worthy of God, guess what? Welcome to the club. None of us are in here. Myself, Pastor Kerry, anyone. You think of the most religious, righteous person you can think of, Mother Teresa, the Pope. All of them fall short of God's glorious standard. They all fall short of perfection. And God says all of us are guilty. We all fall short of God's glory, which means we're equal in God's eyes in terms of our righteousness, we don't meet the standard. But thank God, which leads to point number three, all people have access to salvation through Jesus Christ. He doesn't play favorites. Every person has the opportunity to be saved through Jesus Christ. My favorite verse in Scripture, one of, one of I think it's probably everyone's to a certain extent, but John 3.16 and I'm paraphrasing this, but it says, For God so loved the world, he sent his Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The key phrase there, whoever. That's everyone, every single person you've ever met who believes in Jesus Christ can have their sins forgiven. There is no one that is so wicked, so bad, that they can't have their sins forgiven. I mean, think about that. If Adolf Hitler on his deathbed, turned to Christ, Christ would forgive him if it was authentic and it was a real, him crying out and saying, God, you know what? I'm sorry for all these things I've done. Now, does it make any of the things Adolf Hitler did right? Absolutely not. But it just goes to show how 
Every person on earth has equal access to the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. And that should actually encourage us because point in case is we're all wicked. We're all evil, right? And so we all have the opportunity to receive salvation through Jesus. This leads to the application, and this is kind of what I want us to, we're going to be focusing on in our small group. If this is, if it's true that we're all equally expected to obey, we're all equally guilty before God, all of us have access to salvation, and again, to reiterate, God treats us all equally, we can't earn special status with God, then what that means for us application-wise is we are to treat all people equally. There should be no favoritism in the kingdom of God. All right, and you guys are going to unpack this verse in your small group. Um, so I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but James 2, 1 through 4, I'm just going to read it, and then we'll wrap up. It says, my brothers, show no partiality, my brothers and sisters, right? Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothings comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one that wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Again, I want to say this. We have no right to play this game where we decide who is and is not worthy of a relationship with Jesus Christ. We should be slow to judge people when they are expressing that, you know what, hey, man, I made this conversion in Jesus Christ. You might think, oh, not them. That's playing favorites. When certain people come into the church doors, whether it's a guest or your best friend or whoever, we shouldn't say, oh, I'm going to treat them with, I mean, yes, I get that the relationship might be have more depth and the more camaraderie, but we should still treat those other people with the same love, compassion, kindness that we treat our best friends with because there is no favoritism in the kingdom of God. And the reason is because God doesn't play favorites, and we shouldn't either.